0: You're listening to New Books in Geography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to Stephanie C. Kane, author of Just One Rain Away The Ethnography of River City Flood Control, published last year by McGill Queens University Press. Dr. Kane, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Stentor. Thanks for inviting me. Glad to be here.
0: So, to start off, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to write this book?
1: Okay, I've been thinking I could start a lot of places in this story, but um, I'm a professor of international studies at Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana, and um, my early foundation is in biology and ecology, but I pivoted into cultural anthropology between my master's and doctorate while doing my first fieldwork project in the Amazon when I was recording birds and frogs. In the decades since, I've developed an experimental ethnographic method to focus on the mix of and the tensions between scientific and cultural ideas as they emerge in specific place-based situations. So um, my new book, Just One Rain Away, the aim is really to shift our understanding about what humans are on this planet as actors. And it's also to work against this tendency that in the midst of crisis, we grasp for engineering solutions um, that are um, presumed to be in a domain of technicality that's separate from social and political um, discussion or open to publics. Um, So I think about climate change in particular in a different way than than most people, I think. And I think of it as a the intersection of historical and geological time, because we as humans have uh, changed the planet radically and holistically. We are actually geological actors. Um, so our histories are suddenly interacting with, the geological processes of the planet. So when you think about those geological scale charts, you know, we're like the the, the piece at the top, suddenly we're pivoting that, we're an actor in that. So um, we are geological actors, and as such, we are unintentional actors in that we did not intend to cause climate change. And as much as we think that we intend things, and that's what makes us human, That we're rational and we intend things. What we're in the midst of now is not created by our intentionality, but by our unintentionality. And I really want to understand the relationship between cities as human collectives and rivers as alive, as as water bodies that are entangled and communicating with human beings. Uh, I'll just say one more thing about this project. It grew out of... Um, what I call my port city projects, where I went to various port cities. And originally what I was trying to do was understand um, social and cultural life from the material edge of globalization. So in other words, to kind of be on the ground of globalization. Um, And there I developed this way of working where uh, every city was structured by three water infrastructures, potable water, sewage and drainage. And I used that infrastructural model to then go to different places and they had more or less the same kind of infrastructure and look at the social and cultural um, diversity that um, inhabited particular geographies and use these infrastructures. But when I got to Winnipeg, and it's funny, I said Port City Projects and Winnipeg, is in the geographical center of North America um, and it's a very puzzling place um, in the sense that you know why did people put the city here in the first place it's in the middle of a vast flood bowl that drains the continent so flooding is very much part of its history and they actually are very good at flood control and so it was a good place to look at this moment of of climate change crisis especially around flooding rivers um and try to understand what engineers and scientists and inhabitants were facing and how people were thinking about changing 20 20th, 20th century infrastructure into 21st century inter- infrastructure so i and then i'll say one more thing as um in When I went did all the other port city projects, I imagined this triple infrastructure um, of, of water sewage and drainage. I used that as the empirical baseline against which I did an ethnography that kind of filled in reality with sociality and culture and how people use water bodies. But in the Winnipeg case, I flipped it and I'm thinking about science and engineering and the people who are experts in it as cultural themselves, and science knowledge and engineering knowledge and, and constructions as cultural artifacts that shape the way cities are built and people are on this planet. So that's my intro. All
0: right. Yeah, and you you started to kind of answer what was going to be my next question, which is you know, why Winnipeg, why focus your study on, on this uh, city? And one of the things I found really interesting was the way you described you say that, you know, part of the, the identity of Winnipeg almost is the idea that they're good at flood control now, that they've they've kind of got that figured out, that that's become like, you know, part of what the city's all about. And then there's this question that kind of runs through the the book about, uh, you know, is, is their model so good that it should now be exported like other cities should follow the Winnipeg model uh, because it, it works so well. For them so can you talk a little bit about that that idea that um you know people in winnipeg think they've got figure it figured out
1: yeah um until the 2011 and the 2014 flood of the assiniboine river so the winnipeg winnipeg sits at the um the intersection of two floodplains: one from the red river which comes up from the dakotas across the u.s border and on um, the Assiniboine, which comes from the west, from um, what's that state over there, Saskatchewan. Um, yeah. And so it's it's sitting in this intersection. and But the Assiniboine was always thought of as a kind of squirrely, smaller river. And most of the major infrastructure is is on the Red River, Because the Red River is gigantic compared to the Assiniboine River. So you have this amazing floodway. So the waters boo when they flood in the spring and the ice melts and all the water is rushing up. There's a floodway at the the south end of the city that diverts the water around into a ditch, a giant ditch that goes all around the city and dumps out on the other side of, of, um, into the river on the other side of the city in the north. And that's Pretty amazing. So yes, their infrastructure is amazing. But in the 2011 and 2014 floods, things were happening in the rivers that were not traditionally um, consistent with the history of hydrology in the region. So the Assiniboine um, was flooding in the summer. So everything really was organized around ice melt and snow melt and, and and, and so the infrastructure is built to deal with the spring and with climate change. And we're finding this, we're having rain floods and that just changed the whole equation. So um, when I was there in 2014, it was after those two floods and I used those two floods to like, think about how Winnipeg is both great at flood control and is also really challenged by climate change. And There's one more important dimension to that, and that is the whole notion of why is Winnipeg sitting there in the first place, and why do people go there to this place where rivers flood, and that's what rivers do, and then decide that they want to make it dry and build these divisions between land and water everywhere, and that's where you get into the settler colonial dimension of engineering, which started in the 19th century, and of course, dispossessed indigenous peoples so at that time the settlers in Winnipeg started doing things that destroyed indigenous peoples ways of life um, and they could basically do anything they wanted and that infrastructure from colonial days still underlies the modern system and so even though there are much better laws in Canada that protect the indigenous nations um, The the colonial infrastructure underneath is still there. And I think that's probably true everywhere where there's modern engineering in the world. And that's why Winnipeg is a really good place to think through the positives and negatives of the models that we're working with, how they work and who gets disadvantaged by the systems.
0: Okay. And so you you talked a little bit there about the floods in uh 2011 and 2014 that are you know significant to the, the story you're telling um uh, but the sort of way those floods worked out comes against the background of several other notable past uh floods so you had 1997 you have 1950 and then you even go back to the end of the last ice age with uh what you call the, the outburst quartet um so could you kind of talk us through a bit of this History? How did some of these past floods uh, shape Winnipeg and kind of set the stage for what happened with those more recent floods?
1: Okay, so um, maybe we should start with the geoscience stuff, which modelers, geoscientific modeling, has created this um, history that goes back to um, the end of the last ice age. So let me just go back to the ice age. So that's our last big climate change. And that series of events, water events, shaped the surface of North America as we know it today. Um, So it's a good starting point, especially if you wanna think about humans um, interacting with rivers and, and with everybody intertwined being geological actors. So before people, the glaciers moved down. And then when they started to recede they, they started to melt and, and, and pull back. And the um, the glaciers were melting, and remember the, the, the topography is like low in the center in the middle of the continent, and the, the melting waters just kind of filled and filled the center, and it became this vast lake, which was named Lake Agassiz by a geologist named Uppa. And um, so it, Then you had this vast lake, right? And it couldn't, it kept getting bigger and bigger because the icebergs didn't melt all at once. And so, where it might have gone out, it was blocked by the ice until it burst out. And it burst out in four big moments going in the different directions towards the different oceans. And so, you have um, one going towards the Mackenzie, one going towards the, the Arctic North Atlantic, and another going out. what's now the St. Lawrence Seaway that way towards the Atlantic and one going into the Gulf and those outbursts were fresh water right ice from the snow from the glaciers and so all that fresh water went into the oceans and actually the hypothesis is that it changed the very ocean currents and into the currents that we know today to be on the planet it also when it drained Lake Agassiz, it left the Red River. So the Red River is like the bottom of that, is, is what's left, uh, the channel that's left, that was the kind of bottom of that northward push towards the Arctic. And the Assiniboine is a river that was there before the glaciers, and then when the glaciers came and the Lake Agassiz got bigger and bigger, it formed a delta, and it, um. The, the river kind of went, had a lot of different pathways through geological time, eventually settling into the historical pathway that we have today. And now I'm forgetting what the question was, but that's the background. Oh yeah. So the floods. So the 1997 flood and the 1950 flood before it. These are the great floods, right? That, um, in 1950, they had to, um, completely evacuate, uh, Winnipeg because it, the, the flood overwhelmed it. And this is the Red River, the big Red River, and it, when it when it comes up out of its banks and flows over the prairie, there's nothing to stop it. It just keeps going and going and going, and it becomes a sea. And if you look at photographs, the only thing you'll see are, are the roads and, and the railroad embankments that are perhaps above the landscape. Um, so it was after 1950 that they really, the city, got together and decided they really needed to build their flood control infrastructure to save the city. And that's when they built the floodway and the what's called the Portage Diversion, which we can talk about later, and the Shalmuth Dam. All of that was a result of the 1950 disaster. And then in 1997, all that infrastructure was in place. So it was a test. And in 1997, um, it was also a gigantic flood, but the system held, but it just held. So it's kind of cluing everyone in. Also, a Red River flood, with participation by the Assiniboine both times, but basically a Red River flood. Those were really the last two major floods that were Red River floods. Okay. So
0: then, sort of bringing in the kind of theory that you're you're building for us. One of the, the concepts that you use to understand how this is all working is geoculture so can you tell us what what is geoculture and how does it play a role in understanding uh flooding in winnipeg
1: okay so um you know geology is you know mostly about rocks and and water and things that are thought of as not alive um and geopolitics you know i'm in international studies so geopolitics is very much um about nation states and how they Divvy up the planet. Um, I want geoculture to be about our how we the interpretive frameworks that we use to understand our human or humanimal relationship to the surface of the planet, and so that would include everything we do, like flood control, that that um, manifest our desire to um, control and shape the surface of the planet in interaction with water bodies. Um, so I keep the dash in there because I think I really want to keep the science clear and the engineering clear. And I want to show that culture is, uh, is, is active um, and also a shaper. So how we approach um each other and and how we build cities that's a cultural thing and I'm folding the geology into the culture Um, but I don't want to mush it together
0: (laughs) yeah and I I think that's a sort of an interesting point because a lot of times people talk about wanting to, you know, blur all the boundaries uh, between everything. And it was interesting that you were insisting that, no, you want to keep the hyphen between geo and culture. Um,
1: yeah, um, I, it's like the, the everybody talks about entanglement all the time. I'm like constantly trying to, OK, it's entangled. Let's disentangle it yeah. and figure out what's going on. So you know, anyway, yeah, it's a bee in my bonnet.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's the old lumpers and splitters thing, I guess. We're we're yeah. in kind of a, a moment where people are are trying to emphasize all the connections, and uh, you know, at some point we need to say, oh, well, there are differences too. You got to see that that other side of it.
1: Um, yeah, I see. I think like I don't want to really mush everything together like a lumper, but I and I also don't want to split everything apart like people who just love categories and categorizing everything. I want to create this dynamic space. So I really want the dash to be where my analysis is.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So then, you know, we all know that the map is not identical to the territory, um, but that, that gap between cartography and and on the ground experience is something that that comes up a lot in your book. So can you talk a bit about uh, how the, that difference between what we see on the map and what we see on the ground, the um, shapes, your analysis in your case.
1: Yeah. Cause I, I think I discovered something about, um, a kind of realm of, uh, the political unconscious or, um, the subconscious, um, in relation to water. And it was because of the, the use of maps. So I, I, I start out by, by saying how I love the map library here. And whenever I start a new project, I go and I collect all these giant paper maps from the old days and I lay them all around my room. So by the time I get to the field, I have this map in my head. And all these maps, of course, had the boundary between the United States and Canada, most prominently. And, um, the river, the, the rivers running, from north to south, from, from, from south to north and north. Okay, I'm getting confused here. So let me just, uh, let me go into the place so that I can kind of orient myself. So I'm living near the Red River and I, and I walk in this park, which is a park because they reserved it because it floods um, from the river. Um, And I I walk there every day and and I think about it and um, I, I don't really understand what I'm seeing on the surface of the water because I'm thinking, well, wow, this river is supposed to flow north, right? I have these international models, these continental scale models in my mind, but yet all the ripples on the water, you know, seem to be... Confused, um, they're 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 not necessarily in in uh, resonance with the wind, um, and they don't seem to be in the direction that one would expect from a river that's flowing from south to north. And I'm um, I asked various people, you know, along the way, uh, how come the river looks like this? And you know, people shrug, and because they don't think about that stuff. Well, finally, one one lady um, stops and says. Because you know, my dear, um, the river bend here is going from, from east to west, not south to north, right? Which, of course, is obvious, but I really didn't think about it because I was acting and thinking with this international scale model in my head. So that's one aspect of it that we... Uh, travel to places and we're strangers and we come with these kind of assumptions that are completely unconscious and we we don't get things or most of us don't even think things through about that because we're not really we got our own business to attend to and we're not thinking about the water so that's one thing and the other thing about about this north to south south to north, the direction of the river that was a conundrum that was revealing to me, was that when I talked to um, the engineers and flood forecasters and they would explain how everything worked, and it worked, of course, the system works around and with ice. So the thing about the Red River and flooding is that because the river is coming from the Dakotas, where it's warmer than Winnipeg because it's more south, the river is melting it's melting in the south and moving north. So when it gets to Winnipeg, and Winnipeg is still frozen, the river is still frozen, it forms an obstacle to that water rushing up. Um, and so when it, it, it hits the ice, especially which forms around um, bridges, at the footings of bridges and some bends, when it hits that, it, it it creates problems, and so they have all kind of ways of of dealing with that. So the thing is, as I was listening to them, I I understood what they were telling me, but in the back of my mind, I was there was this confusion. I was always kind of having to make a translation in my mind from the river that flows north from south to north to my predisposition um, or my habit of thinking that rivers flow south, north to south, because I have spent my most of my life in the Mississippi River Basin. So for me, rivers go from north to south. Um, So here's an example of where we consciously know something, but unconsciously we're really thinking about something else. yeah so i think those kinds of um uh, predispositions to think in certain ways as we as bodies move around space is a kind of cultural orientation that's not explored ever so i was surprised by it and interested and um it's probably related to map making in all kinds of situations that could be looked into more deeply.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, So in one of your earlier answers, you made reference to the fact that you're writing this book as kind of an ethnography, uh, but it's also kind of a little bit of unusual ethnography because it's not mostly populated with people. You know, the the characters in the ethnography uh, are a lot of, other kinds of, of entities um, besides just people that you might find in like a classic ethnography. So can you tell us a bit about your your methods for, um, for constructing the book and how you use this ethnographic approach that's a, a little different from a, a typical ethnography?
1: Yeah, so um, basically I feel like a lot of... Anthropology and sociology and cultural geography um, focuses a lot on people who are arguing with each other about how to do things, um, and I kind of lost patience with that. And I felt I understand the dangers of thinking about um, humanity or human animals as um, a species um, writ large because it erases. All the, um, differences and inequalities and acts of dispossession that have come before and that people have different places in, in the, in the social realm. But I wanted to flip the perspective so that I'm trying to be a river. I'm trying to understand humans as a river. And so when, as a river, I'm flowing towards Winnipeg and I, boom, I meet Winnipeg and I meet the infrastructure and the shape. And and so it's, it's a collective. So I don't really care as a river that people are doing this or that or talking about this or that. It's, it's the physicality of it. Um, so really I want to give agency to the river. And I also want to think about humans um, in relation to all the other elements and um, beings on the planet. So this is part of um, both the, what's called new materialism um, and um, more than human studies, where we're trying to de-center the human in the way we understand our role, right? To stand outside of ourselves by putting ourselves in the position of these other beings or sometimes thought of as things. And that's why science is so important because that's scientific knowledge is really what enables me in the book to try to inhabit and imagine what it would be like to be a river or a diatom or a bird. Um, And 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 have to encounter humans and and human cities
0: yeah so i want to pick up on your mention of diatoms there because that was i found that really interesting as one of the you know non-humor more than human uh, characters in the book it's not one that i think most of us think about very much uh, and certainly not not something that I expected to be a big component of a book about uh, flooding. So can you tell us you know, first, what are diatoms? And then, you know, why are they important enough to get you know, their whole own chapter in this book?
1: Well, I have to say that before I start getting into the, the beautiful architecture of diatoms, that um, I, I, my method is rather serendipitous, Um, I like to, um, play with my materials. So, um, field work and data collection was, took place over a four month period, but then for the next many years, I've worked with these materials and I've talked to people about them. And so I go through all kinds of different, um, relational settings that, 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 that lead me to think about things in a certain way. So the diatom, uh, situation came about because I have a friend and colleague, Jaya Savitsky, who's a geoscience modeler and my my geoscience guru. And um, so I wrote him an email and I was thinking about water bodies and thinking, well, how do you define the difference between a river and lake? And so he wrote me a short email, um, which had a, a lovely way to think about the difference, but what really struck me was just the phrase in his email and it was that when, um, that that lakes are places where diatoms, if they rush in from a river and they wind up in a lake, the lake's clear waters allow them to just hang out and, um, and catch the sunlight in their silica, um, their delicate silica, open, lacy structure and convert that um, that sunlight into food for fishes and zooplankton. So they're primary producers. But the idea was that the river is rushing and it's muddy and it's poof, and so the diatoms are just willy-nilly, you know, being pushed along. But then when they get to the lake, that's when they can find their their true being. And um, so just that little phrase set me off because I didn't know what diatoms were. So I started getting these giant tomes about diatoms from the library and they were full of these gorgeous pictures. And it turns out that they're very interesting historically because they were really the inspiration for the development of microscopes originally with... um, so, Lewin Hoke, I think it was the 17th century, um, was, uh, they think it was diatoms. He called them animal molecules. He developed the first lenses through which people could see the microscopic. So, they were um, an, an original inspiration for wanting to see more and developing visual technologies for seeing. Um, so, I kind of followed that notion that not only were these beautiful microscopic creatures that we can't see with our naked eye inspiring us to create these, these, these microscopes, but that um, they're also helping to, um, they're, they're, they're producing food. So they're like foundational and of course, when, like you say in a book about flooding, who would ever think about diatoms? So this is a way to kind of stretch the um, the the kind of terrain in which we're understanding the relationship between water, the surface of water, water bodies, the earth, and human beings, and what we're we're doing um, by diverting things and connecting river basins, and you know flooding lakes, Uh, and then there's a whole part about geoscientists who discovered a particular species because of the latest visual type technologies in light microscopy and electron microscopy and all kind of new microscopy, and all these different uh, microscope technologies let you see Things differently so some you can see dead diatoms and others you can see only live you can see live diatoms Um, and with these different visual technologies you can see different details and by seeing different details you can sort these diatoms into different species and then you can track these species if you're looking at the dead ones which are the most powerfully visualized you can get the dead ones from the sediments of the lake and study the relationship between the lake and the river in, in ancient geological time. So I think of diatoms as actors and colleagues of scientists who are trying to understand the relationship of um, Lake Manitoba and, and the, the, um, the Assiniboine River, uh, for starters. Yeah. Yeah. They're totally neat. Everybody should go and just Google it and look at pictures of them. <laughs> yeah.
0: Okay. So as we're moving towards the end of our time here, I wanted to give you an opportunity to give uh, a shout-out or a thank you to anyone whose help was important to you as you were writing this book.
1: Okay. Well, as I said, it was years in the making. But, of course, without Winnipeg, the wonderful city, such a quixotic city, um so cold, and, and so wet, and so wonderful. It has a wonderful art scene, and the people are lovely, and um, it's, let me see. So uh, I wanna thank the, of course, the engineers and the the flood, uh, the uh, forecasters, and um, the resource, the natural resource people, all of these experts who in law too, who, who took the time to talk to me even though they had no idea really where I was coming from or why I was asking these very basic questions and why didn't I just take an engineering 101 class. Uh, You know, so they were very kind and very helpful and the book never could have seen the light of day without everything they've taught me, Um, especially Bill Ranny, who took me on two um, field trips with his uh, geophysical sciences class that were wonderful. Um I want to thank um Pauline Greenhill who's been my friend since we went to graduate school together in UT Austin. She's a folklorist and a gender studies professor who was the reason that I went to Winnipeg way before I did this project in Winnipeg. And um Danny Blair who came up with the idea of creating this Fulbright Research Scientist position um at the University of Winnipeg. Um and yeah and Okay, so, and everybody in Winnipeg. Pablo Pilar, shout out, performance artists who made my time there wonderful. Um, and over the years, right, I've been going to, I love workshops, and I've been to a lot of them, and, and I, I want to just mention two, two really pivotal uh, groups that I work with. One, first, it was the Rivers of the Anthropocene, A group and Jaya Savitsky, who I already mentioned, um, they were um, pivotal in that. And a lot of the geologists who, um, not a lot, but several of the geologists who were into the Anthropocene and trying to make it a real um, geological, an official geological uh epic not just a cultural phenomena over there and historians and artists and it was a wonderful transdisciplinary space as they called it and uh really uh pulled me into a way of thinking about rivers that i i didn't know about and um yeah mark williams too was in that group um And also, and very importantly, when I started thinking about ICE, seriously, was the ICE Law Project, headed up by the visionary Phil Steinberg um, at the University of Durham. And I got to work with um, folks at at Dalhousie um, University in in, uh, Canada, uh, who was my my subgroup. And it was a three-year project, and we got together in, in Durham and in Finland and in Sweden I think all these different places and we talked about how uh, international law could come to grips with ice and I learned so much it was another radically interdisciplinary group of people law science arts humanities all getting together and thinking about how to um, sort of push against this notion that the Arctic Ocean is like any ocean and that boats should be able to go through and just break up the ice. And it got me thinking about ice. And so then when I got to Canada um, and was working in Winnipeg, I had a whole different framework for thinking about ice. And I probably should stop there.
0: All right. So then that brings us to our traditional final question, which is, what are you working on next?
1: Okay, so I'm hoping to get another Fulbright to go to Portugal, to Lisbon. And I don't know if you remember, but at the beginning of the interview, I mentioned that um, when I was in the sciences doing ecology, I was in the Amazon recording birds Um That was kind of the not official side of the project. I was supposed to be doing frogs because there wasn't a professor interested in birds. Anyway, I I had this thing about birds and I'm still got this thing about birds. So I'm going back to birds, but so I'm trying to look at all this water stuff, these water ecologies and infrastructure, engineering um, projects from the perspective of birds. So it's called um, port city as avian habitat, and I'm looking at what I call the the interface between the environment, which is a maritime estuary, the Tagus estuary off the coast of Lisbon, and um, and how the birds uh, fly. It's a key um, resting a nesting place for the birds, and the it's a it's the I forget which flyway, but the birds are coming back and forth from Africa to northern Europe and stopping in the marsh opposite uh, the, the opposite coast from Lisbon. Um, so, yeah, all this that I've been talking about, but flipping it entirely from to try to get to understand how birds are relating to For example, this giant bridge that now crosses the Tagus estuary. And I'm going to be working with scientists who work who study birds and also hanging out under the bridge and watching them fly around. So I'm looking forward to that, if I get it.
0: All right. Well, that sounds really interesting. And if that turns into a book, we'd love to have you back to talk about it.
1: (laughs) Thank you, Stentor. It's been a pleasure. You ask good questions.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Yeah, my pleasure.
0: This has been a conversation with Stephanie C. Kane, author of Just One Rain Away The Ethnography of River City Flood Control, published last year by McGill Queens University Press.